Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. Welcome to the Literature Review Series, where I'm uh, very lucky to collaborate with up-and-coming pharmacists. And I think we all know how hard it is to keep up with the literature and articles that are published. So why don't you let us help? We've gone through, we're making our way through 2021, and today we're reviewing articles published in May and June of 2021. Quick reminder on a few of our general guidelines. Remember, they're guidelines. We can break them at any time. But uh, number one, we try to avoid COVID-19 topics. I think we're all burnt out a little bit on that. We focus on articles from table of contents, right? The ones that get emailed um, to everybody or get delivered to your, to your mailbox. But there might be a few online first articles that are so good we have to talk about them now. Um, and this is really meant to have fun, right? While showcasing and shouting out the awesome work that our pharmacy peers are doing. Now, two other kind of quick points here before I introduce our, our guest host today. You know, as I was preparing for this, I think it just needs to be pointed out that the articles that we are and that we have been discussing on the Literature Review series here, they're being created and published during a global pandemic where all of us are overworked, underpaid, and just exhausted. I think it's pretty incredible what everyone is still doing to help contribute to the literature and to just giving great patient care. I think it's amazing and I think it's easy to get lost with everything that's happening um, and feel like we're never doing enough. So I think it's, we need to take a step back and just kudos to each and every one of us, especially the people in the articles that we're talking about here. And there's been names that'll come up multiple times and it's just, it's awesome all around. And then also, the titles of the section are going to be mostly Rolling Stones related. I know that's not like a huge change from normal, but um, it's going to be Memory of Charlie Watts, the band's longtime drummer who passed away in August of this year. So we'll get a little bit creative with um, some of our titles here, but uh, that's why they're going to be changed up a little bit. And to be honest, that's one of the fun parts of this. Now, the real reason that we're all here. Let's introduce the guests and get going. So our two guest hosts reviewing literature published in May and June of 2021 are Dr. Alyssa White and Nico Bonavoglia. Now, Alyssa White received her PharmD from the University of Kansas School of Pharmacy and recently completed her PGY1 residency at North Kansas City Hospital. She's currently working as a clinical pharmacist in internal medicine at the Advent Health Shawnee Mission. You can find her on Twitter at Alyssa underscore PharmD. Wow, she's the number one Alyssa out there on Twitter. Now, Dr. Nico Bonavoglia was born and raised in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Shout out to the office. Now, for the record, he put that in there. We'll come back to that. We're going to put a pin in there. Um, now, he received his doctorate of pharmacy from Wilkes University in 2019 and completed his PGY-1 and PGY-2 in critical care at Abington Hospital Jefferson Health in Abington, Pennsylvania. He started his career as an ICU float pharmacist at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and he's also on Twitter, at Nico, but instead of an I, it's the number one, so N-1-K-K-O, 
816. Now, Nico, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me. How are you both doing today? Good. Thanks, Nick. Doing great, Nick. Thanks. So I have to ask, you know, Nico, you shouted out the office in here. I'm guessing from Scranton, right? I don't think any of us would know that town, your hometown without the office. So I think we have to start it off. What's your favorite office episode? And then Nico, you start and then Alyssa, you kind of come in and let us know because we got to hear. No, thanks, Nick. So yeah, for sure. Big office fan. Now I didn't originally start watching it till when I saw the first episode. Now it wasn't in order, but of course it's the CPR episode. And this was a course during fire school <laughs> when I first did my CPR training and was one of the funniest episodes I ever saw. So I had to start getting into the show. And after that, I've become hooked and probably have watched this, uh, the entire um, seasons probably two or three times. <laughs> that's such a classic Man. and good answer. I'm sorry, Alyssa, go ahead. Uh, that's fine. That was going to be my favorite episode as well. It's probably every healthcare professional who watches the office's favorite episode, but Second runner-up would probably be the Dundies episode where they do the kind of like award show for all of the employees of the office. That is absolutely, you're hitting, y'all are hitting numbers two and three for me. The CPR one <laughs> is the best. I used to teach like ACLS to, to students and residents and I think I love doing it because I exclusively carved out five minutes for the the scene right where they're doing the CPR. Everyone's seen it. I'm sure y'all saw it in class too. Um, the other one that just is so perfect and it makes you, it makes you cringe even thinking about it is the dinner party. Um, oh where everyone comes over and Michael and Jane get in the big fight. They, they throw something at the, at his big screen or as a flat screen TV. Gosh, that's hilarious. Gosh, we could go. Okay. We could go all day about that. Let's do a quick, <laughs> let's go back onto the road from Nick's detour here. Um, and let's kind of get our six pack of studies going. We're going to crack open a, a few seltzers or maybe something stronger and we'll have Nico and Alyssa dig a bit deeper into six studies. We're going to have Alyssa start us off um, bringing in um, a study looking at the role of pharmacists and what we're doing in the emergency department. Perfect. Thanks, Nick. So this first study I want to talk about is the farm EM study or pharmacist avoidance or reductions in medical costs in patients presenting to the emergency department. And this study was published in the Critical Care Exploration. So as we all know, the role of pharmacists in our emergency department has been shifting throughout the year, and currently it includes performing really direct bedside patient care, and our pharmacists are integral members of our multidisciplinary team. However, currently, over half of all emergency departments employ a pharmacist for 12 hours or less per day. So there's really a lot of room for expansion for pharmacists in our emergency departments. And I do want to point out before we get started that there is a framework that exists for both categorizing and monetizing cost avoidance interventions by both critical care and emergency medicine pharmacists. And it was validated and developed in a previous study. And that is what is being used in the Farm EM studies. So PharmEM is a multi-center prospective observational study, and they classified interventions by emergency medicine pharmacists and quantified their cost avoidances generated through their accepted interventions. So they actually recruited pharmacists by sending an email out to the SCCM's clinical pharmacy and pharmacology list, or the SCCM CCP, and included any pharmacists who provided direct or decentralized patient care for patients specifically in the emergency department. 
and excluded any pharmacists who were either completing residency or current fellowship training. And then the interventions that they included were grouped into a few different subsections, subsections such as adverse event prevention, any sort of like research utilization, individualization of patient care, prophylaxis added, any hands-on care by the pharmacist, and then administrative or supportive tasks as well. And these interventions were entered by each individual pharmacist. There was no min or max duration of study participation that was required, but it was encouraged that pharmacists document interventions for a total of 20 shifts. Now for a primary endpoint, they looked at the quantity, type, and acceptance of interventions. So 124 pharmacists actually responded to this email and 88 were participating in the study. And I do want to point out that the average patient acuity was an emergency service severity index or ESI of level two or three, with one being the most urgent and five being the least urgent. So over 14,000 interventions were included in the study with over 97% actually being accepted and implemented, with the most frequent interventions being any sort of dosage adjustment, um, non-antimicrobial therapy initiation, and then initiation of either antibiotics or streamlining of antibiotics. And overall, there was a potential cost avoidance of over $7 million, with the areas of greatest cost avoidance being major adverse event prevention, any sort of antibiotic therapy initiation or streamlining, and then actually blood factor stewardship was one of the top three as well. So on average, the potential cost avoidance per pharmacist shift in the emergency department was over $8,000. And the potential monetary cost avoidance to pharmacist salary ratio was 10.6 to $1. So pharmacists are basically earning 10 times as much as they cost. Um, PharmEM also did a sensitivity analysis, which was the five most validated intervention categories. And they still found a monetary cost avoidance to pharmacist salary ratio of 1.4 to 1. So overall, the authors of this study concluded that pharmacist involvement in the patient, um, care of patients presenting to the emergency department really resulted in significant cost avoidance um, in healthcare costs. And the potential cost avoidance of pharmacist salary ratio to the EM um, pharmacist is between 1.4 to 10.6 to $1. I think one of the biggest strengths of this study was the use of an evidence-based framework to both categorize and monetize the cost avoidance associated with the pharmacist intervention um, since there is the potential to both over and underestimate cost avoidance, especially when you have categories that are difficult to estimate costs, such as adverse event prevention. And I do want to point out that this study may not be as generalizable to all pharmacists or all emergency departments, especially ones with a lower patient acuity, as we saw the average ESI was two to three in this study. And I do think that this study could lead to possible Further data are studies on the impact of emergency medicine pharmacists on patient-specific outcomes, looking at like hospital length of stay or mortality, and really we'll be able to use this study to justify further pharmacist shifts in coverage in the emergency department, and it really adds to the overall evidence that we as pharmacists improve care. I mean, I think this study is absolutely amazing. You made a really, really great point with um, talking about the framework. Um, you know, it was the the study you're referencing is the farm crit study, right? This study was looking at um, 
you know, the emergency medicine pharmacist that was looking at uh, critical care ICU pharmacists. Um, I mean, we could oogle and talk about the all the different cost savings and the um, the amount that we give back just by being on the team. I just think it can be frustrating that we're still just we're still at the point where we're still justifying our positions and still having to publish these articles showing all the things we can do. Like at a certain point, like, are we justified yet? Maybe we'll get there soon. It just feels like we're uh, unfortunately not there, but just awesome, awesome um, way to really document and try to put into writing all the things that we do for, for patients. It was really, really well done study. Now, We'll kind of be going back and forth here for a second. So, Nico, the study you're going to be talking about, we've touched on previously, but it's so good. I think we had to bring you back and talk a little bit more in depth about it. Thanks, Nick. Uh, yeah, in the last episode, uh, Nick, you did host Dr. Scott Banking, who gave a great overview on targeted temperature management, also known as TTM. He gave a brief summary of the TTM2 trial. But I'm hoping to discuss the article further in depth. To give a brief background, the ACLS guidelines recommend initiation of TTM for patients who don't follow commands after return of spontaneous circulation or ROS post out of hospital cardiac arrest. Literature behind why the guidelines recommend TTM was initially based on three RCTs the HACA, TTM, and Hyperion trials. After the TTM2 trial was published, the current ACLS recommendations were then challenged. As a refresher, this is an investigator-initiated randomized superiority trial with approximately 1,800 adults that compared hypothermia at 33 degrees Celsius to normal thermia in patients with coma after out-of-hospital post-cardiac arrest. Sedation was monitored in both groups, but unfortunately, there wasn't a mandated protocol. The primary agents used were propofol, dexmedetomidine, fentanyl, or remifentanil. For the outcomes of this study, there wasn't a significant difference in the primary outcome of death from any cause at six months between the two groups. The study did look at a multitude of different secondary outcomes, and the most pertinent outcome was arrhythmias with hemodynamic compromise that occurred more frequently in the hypothermia versus normal thermia group. This could be due to the different metabolic changes that can occur when your temperatures decrease. When looking at previous TTM trials that showed a benefit, this trial had a sample size that was five times larger than the original trials. Interestingly, while looking at different post-cardiac arrest protocols in this trial, sedation and paralysis weren't protocolized through all institutions. This can be due to different clinical practice at each institution, but overall the majority of patients received propofol. Some key takeaways from the study are this is the largest randomized controlled trial comparing hypothermia to normal thermia and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. However, it is important to note that over 90% of patients in both groups had bystander CPR performed, which is a rate not found anywhere in the United States. Wow. Yeah. I know. It's, it's crazy to see people being able to do CPR um, that frequently throughout, so uh, across the United States. But overall, my key takeaway from this study is clinicians should carefully consider the use of TTM in post-cardiac arrest patients. I do believe it can be beneficial in patients who were found down for a short period of time who received CPR shortly after. 
it would be interesting seeing different patient populations, such as patients who are found down for an unknown period of time, inpatient cardiac arrest, or arrest due to drowning, chemical or mechanical asphyxia, or drug overdose. Nick, how do you think this will change your hospital decision on starting TPM? I'm not sure this is going to make any necessarily acute changes. Um, I think that ultimately this shows that, okay, maybe we don't need to be targeting, this is my takeaway for the record, that maybe we don't be, need to be targeting, right, aggressive um, like hypothermia, which they kind of define as that like 32 to 34 degrees. And maybe we can do, um, something like 36 degrees or, you know, like Scott was saying when he came on, right. Maybe the answer is avoiding fevers in general, right. One of the biggest critiques of those early studies was that the normothermic group was actually febrile at a pretty high rate. So, you know, I think we know, we know, we know, we know that, uh, fevers are bad in these patients. And in this study specifically, um, if they were comatose still after 48, after 40 hours, after the study protocol, they avoided fevers for a total of 72 hours from randomization. So that three day period. So I think that's one of the important things. I think kind of the next question is going to be, okay, is it avoiding fevers now? Or is it, um, like, you know, kind of more of like the, you know, is it 36 versus, um, you know, normothermia or something like that, we'll have to see. But I don't think acutely it's going to change. Um, Nico, what's your, do you all standardize, you know, whether 33 or 36, or do you have both options available? Uh, so I was actually just looking at the protocol today because I wasn't exactly sure when we had a patient that was on PPM. No, I've seen 33. That was written in our protocol, but I didn't see any other temperatures, but that's not to say that we don't also, but as of right now, um, what I've seen was 33% in, or 33 degrees Celsius, which is also what we currently use at my previous institution. Mm -hmm. And that's what, I think that's the standard at a lot of places with some exceptions for 36. I think there might be some that do 36, but yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood here. Um, yeah. So love this article, you know, five times what the previous, what the previous trials enrolled. So that's pretty impressive there. Um, all right. So kind of switching gears here a little bit and kind of diving into the realm of, uh, antibiotics here with the Datipo study. Alyssa, take it away. Thank you. Um, so this is antibiotic therapy for six or 12 weeks for prosthetic joint infections. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May. So a little bit of background, treatment of prosthetic joint infections or PJIs is A, challenging and B, costly and consists of both surgical and antibiotic therapy. And treatment failure is also common and occurs up to a third of all patients. So I do want to note that current recommendations for antibiotic durations for these patients are actually primarily based on expert opinions and not necessarily evidence-based. So the IDSA PGI guidelines currently recommend two to six weeks of IV therapy, followed by oral antibiotic treatment for three to six months, depending on the joint. And there was a study published in 2019, which listed oral versus IV antibiotics for both bone and joint infections. And they found actually that oral antibiotic therapy was non-inferior to IV um, when they had seven days of IV antibiotics first. So the TIPO was um, looking at a short course of antibiotic therapy, so six weeks, 
And their no hypothesis was that it would have similar safety and efficacy outcomes to the traditional longer 12-week course in patients with PJIs. So it is a randomized, multi-center, open-label, controlled, non-inferiority study. And they included patients who were 18 and up who had a prosthetic joint infection, either a hip or a knee. And these patients had to be managed with surgical procedures, have a symptom of infection, and then have a microbiologically documented infection. And they excluded patients who had recently received antibiotic therapy, had undergone like multiple surgeries for joints for sepsis at that joint, or who had a joint infection caused by something strange like a mycobacterium or a fungal pathogen. And overall, they, um, I do want to point out that empiric treatment as well as the definitive treatment was not standardized in the study, and it was up to the treating physician to choose these antibiotics. So the primary outcome for Dekipo was a persistent infection within two years after the end of antibiotic therapy, and the occurrence of this outcome was validated by a committee of three independent specialists. Secondary endpoints for this study included new infections, probable treatment failures, hospital length of stay, as well as functional and safety outcomes for our patients. And touching briefly on stats, so they had an assumed incidence of persistent infection of 15% in patients in both trial groups. So they would need 410 patients to give an 80% power to show non-inferiority. And they did perform their analysis in a modified intention-to-treat population, which included all patients randomized except for those who either withdrew consent or died. And missing outcomes for patients who were either lost to follow-up were considered to be a persistent infection. So 410 patients were enrolled in this trial, and 404 were included in that intention-to-treat analysis. And the average age of our patients was about 70, the majority being males with hip infections. And the two most common pathogens were Staphylococcus aureus and coag-negative staph, which are to be expected. And the average IV antibiotic duration was actually nine days in both groups, with the majority of patients receiving vancomycin. Moving on to results for the primary outcome of persistent infection, there was an 18.1% occurrence in the six-week group versus a 9.4% in that 12-week group. So double the occurrence of persistent infection in that shorter antibiotic duration. As for secondary outcomes, there was really no difference except for there are more non-serious adverse events in that 12-week group, mainly just GI disorders probably due to a prolonged oral antibiotic course. So the authors for this study concluded that antibiotic therapy for six weeks was not shown to be non-inferior to the traditional antibiotic therapy for 12 weeks. And I think one of the biggest strengths of the study was that overall two-year follow-up of patients to really see the whole picture of any persistent infection that may occur after surgery. Um, and though this study did not quite meet power, I think that really stark difference between the two groups and rates of persistent infection does show us that we can really believe these results. Um, and of note, the largest between-group difference in treatment failure was actually in patients who had a debridement with implant retention. So in the future, we could definitely look at designing a trial, looking at shorter antibiotic durations, possibly in those one or two stage implant exchanges who may have a lower risk of infection because we're getting rid of that infected joint material. But in conclusion, really sticking with that 12-week traditional duration of antibiotic therapy 
for PJIs is definitely more appropriate than a six-week duration at this time. Shorter isn't always better, is it? I mean, I can <laughs> I can certainly understand, and especially too when you look at the get. I mean, that's a pretty that would be a pretty um, big change being able to reduce like the duration yeah, you're getting those antibiotics. Half. Yeah, yeah, that would be amazing because you think about like just the having to do IV antibiotics around the clock, right, for weeks on end to treat this infection. I I can't imagine that would be really hard, right? Sometimes we have hard. Hard time taking a vitamin, let alone doing something two or three <laughs> times a day. Um, but yeah, I like your idea that, you know, there are some differences within like the type of, um, uh, you know, surgery that they have, um, the type of exchange, right? Was there an IND mm -hmm. with the implant and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, maybe more to come here, but yeah, that's a, a really good idea and, um, you know, ultimately, we got to make sure we treat it and that that new or persistent infection is, uh, yeah, it's pretty stark, right? It's basically double. Yeah, not good. So we're going to stick on the on the antibiotic train here. And for the record, I I absolutely love trial names that have acronyms. So Nico's going to take us away on the cleanup IPF study. Oh, that's perfect, Nick. So the cleanup IPF study, I think, is the topic that is necessary to understand because it does come time to time, especially in the medical ICU. So idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, is the most common of the idiopathic interstitial pneumonias that lead to fibrotic abnormalities. During the scar buildup, lung dysbiosis reduces the patient's microbial diversity of beneficial microbiota, which is ends up leading to IPF progression. Antimicrobial therapy has been suggested in previous trials to favorably alter the lung microbiome community. Recently published, the METPAC trial has shown controversial data supporting the use of antibiotics in IPF. It looked at Bactrim compared to placebo and showed there wasn't a reduction of death, transplant, or non-elective hospitalization compared with placebo. In the cleanup IPF trial, we are hoping to get answers on whether antibiotics should be included in our treatment course of IPF. So the cleanup IPF trial is a randomized, unblinded, phase three multi-center clinical trial that randomized patients to either receive antimicrobial therapy, which is defined as bactrim double strength twice daily plus folic acid or doxycycline 100 milligram once or twice daily compared to usual care. There were follow-up visits that were scheduled from 3 to 36 months. To get into some of our outcomes, the primary endpoint was time-to-first non-elective respiratory hospitalization or all-cause mortality. This proved there was no significant interaction between the effect of both antimicrobial agents or effect of antimicrobial therapy compared to usual care. There were numerous secondary outcomes, but the only significant difference seen was a higher withdrawal rate due to poor adherence in the antimicrobial group compared to usual care. This could be due to the high side effect profile and poor tolerance of both bactrim and doxycycline. So overall, for the conclusion, we didn't really see a significant difference in the improvement of non-elective respiratory hospitalization or death in IPF patients when treated with antibiotics. Compared to previous trials, this is the largest IPF trial ever conducted but the patient population was healthier 
in the sense that they didn't smoke as many pack years. For me, the biggest takeaway from this trial is prolonged use of antibiotics make patients more prone to adverse events, such as GI symptoms with doxycycline or rashes and hyperkalemia and bacteria. The study didn't measure the amount of lung microbes or the direct effect of antimicrobials on the lung microbiota to exclude certain substances that would potentially be beneficial from antibiotics. As of right now, I wouldn't prophylactically start antibiotics in IPF patients to prevent progression of the disease. What are your thoughts, Nick? Well, before I read this study, I can say that I knew close to zero about antimicrobial prophylaxis for our IPF patients, but I feel like I'm on the same page as you as there's not anything super convincing here, right? I think that in, you know, they've seen the benefit with using some, some azithromycin for, you know, COPD and some of those things. It makes sense that we would try it in these other things. It kind of makes me curious if we chose other antibiotics that maybe didn't have, you know, like we all know that Bactrim has a pretty high rate of side effects, even when we use it for shorter courses. I'm kind of curious if that would um, affect it at all. Um, but ultimately, I uh, I can't say that I feel strongly about recommending it based on the results of this study, the biggest IPF study ever ever done. No, I definitely agree with you. Um, maybe it would be different using different antibiotics with a lower side effect profile, but as of right now, I agree i wouldn't continue uh i would not start them on antibiotics for prophylactic purposes and now Alyssa, we're going to have you kind of uh hit on your last study here and we started off talking about kind of um pharmacists down in the emergency department so why don't you kind of wrap us up and we'll talk a little bit about pharmacists up in our icus yeah so this article is a little bit different than the other articles in our six pack of studies. The first being that it does not have a cool nickname or acronym, but the second being that it is a gap analysis approach. So this is not like a trial, not randomized, um, but really this review utilizes the gap analysis approach to define current clinical services provided by our critical care pharmacists to really identify any barriers to providing those services and then focuses on proposals to really expand clinical services in the ICU setting. And it builds on the white paper position statement from ASHP, ACCP, and SECM that the critical care pharmacist is really an essential member of the healthcare team for delivery of our patient-centered care in our ICUs. So this article looks at really what is optimal clinical pharmacist services in the ICU. Um, how can we identify an ICU pharmacist-to-patient ratio that maximizes the composite of really three key domains? So one, patient outcomes, the most important, two, healthcare costs, and then three, the pharmacist welfare themselves. And they identified some gaps that exist um, to achieving optimal critical care pharmacy clinical services. And I do want to point out that no study has really formally evaluated how our ICU pharmacist-to-patient ratio affects number or quality of medication interventions, any patient outcomes, healthcare costs, or pharmacist well-being. So the key gaps that they aim to address are, if our ICU pharmacists have fewer patients, um, does their effectiveness improve? Or if services are delivered on evenings or weekends, are ICU patient outcomes further optimized as well? 
as well as what factors may influence that optimal ratio between services to patients that should be delivered. For example, severity of illness of patients, any number or type of medication. Are there any additional responsibilities of the pharmacist that would have positive effects on patient outcomes that might influence the staffing ratio as well, such as different teaching opportunities, quality improvement projects, or simply order verification? And then lastly, is there a synergistic relationship that exists between the delivery of direct patient care and indirect patient care responsibilities, such as different service roles, or the education of students, residents, other trainees? So the main strategy to bridge these knowledge gaps um, in this article is looking at a metrics-based approach. So a medication regimen complexity score has been proposed as kind of a quantifiable metric that's designed to connect components of an optimal critical care pharmacist practice model. One of those being the MRC-ICU, which stands for the Medication Regimen Complexity Scoring Tool. And this is a validated objective method to really measure medication regimen complexity in our critically ill adult patients. And this MRC-ICU score has been correlated at 24 hours with our ICU pharmacist interventions, um, cumulative interventions at discharge, and then drug-drug interactions as well. So ideally, by applying this tool in a wide variety of institution types and ICU settings, we can kind of create a common way to investigate and establish best pharmacy practice models. Um, and there are other potential roles, too, for using a metric like MRC, ICU. Um, our hospital admin can use it to kind of provide resource predictions and provide a different perspective for clinical pharmacist justification. Again, touching on that thing. We need to constantly justify ourselves, and this is another way to do that. It could provide real-time guidance to establish our optimal ICU pharmacist-to-patient ratios. And then lastly, you can just use it as clinician-oriented info to kind of prioritize patients during your workup, patients who may be at greatest risk of unfavorable medication effects. So in conclusion, our ICU workload for critical care pharmacists providing clinical services has not been optimized. And this lack of optimization really exposes our critically ill patients to potential worse outcomes, increased healthcare costs, and um, poor welfare of pharmacists in our ICUs. So the use of some sort of quantifiable, externally validated metric that allows for cross-institution and cross-patient population evaluations of patient outcomes, healthcare costs, pharmacist welfare, and other pharmacist resources really has a strong potential for optimizing our ICU pharmacist clinical services. So, so much to unpack here um, <laughs> a little bit. A, it's a preprint manuscript. So right behind having a title for your article is if you're getting it published as an accepted manuscript, you definitely know it's important. Um, so a couple things to kind of maybe clarify or give a little further detail on before we talk about why I love it. But you mentioned like the MRC ICU. Um, and if you are looking for more info here, you can literally go to MRCICU.com. But basically, um, this is a tool that has been created with the UGA C3, um, which is all the the great critical care pharmacists down in Georgia. And it's basically a, a tool that consists of medications and devices that help way how complex regimens are and help score kind of how sick they are and and things of that nature so it's um it's been studied multiple times so they're kind of using that as a way to help 
us justify our patient ratios because the white paper did a really good job of saying, hey, what are things we need to be doing every day? What are things that would be great if we could be doing every day? And then what are some pie in the sky things? But they don't necessarily, and what this paper does, you know, talks about is, you know, they don't say ways of like, okay, how are we able to do these? Or how can we get more positions to do these? Or how can we do all these things and make sure that we're not all just focused on nothing but um, work and um, you know, critically ill patients that we're not getting burnt out. We're having some sort of work-life balance here. Um, so I thought it was, it was really great. I mean, it starts with a quote, which is one of my favorite things. That's how, um, you know, Andrew Newsom is so good at, at these things, but the quote, what gets measured gets improved. Um, tons of friends of the pod involved, Andrea, Brian Murray, Mitch Buckley, Susan Smith, who is a friend of the pod, just hasn't been able to make it on just yet. And, you know, ultimately it just gives us ideas and other resources on how to optimize the clinical care. And I love that this is from uh, pharmacists across the country, because clearly this is an issue that's not relegated to one state or area of the country. So really, really good kind of gap analysis, kind of talking more about this and figuring out what we can do, but more to come here. But yes, scream from the rooftops. When our, when you're covering for way more patients, you're not able to be as more effective. I think that is a uh, pretty reasonable um, statement that hopefully no one's pushing back on. And then Nico, this is Maybe sneakily one of my favorite articles of the six-pack of studies. Go ahead and close us out on a pretty big controversy regarding fluid selection for some of our renal patients. Oh, I will, Nick, because I agree with you also. I think it's pretty important also. So as pharmacists, we care about not only medications, but fluids as well, which Dr. Anthony Hawkins alluded to in the previous fluid stewardship episode. Most of us are aware of the famous SMART trial that compared balanced crystalloids to normal saline in critically ill adults. The trial showed patients who received normal saline met one or more criteria for a major adverse kidney event at 30 days, which included increase in mortality, renal replacement therapy, or persistent renal dysfunction. Even though the primary outcome favored balanced crystalloids, providers had concerns in specific patient populations. I know there is provider concerns with balanced fluids causing increase in lactate levels. Historically, a lactate increase has been reported as minimal with no clinically significant effects. Also, the subgroup analysis showed that septic patients actually experience reduced mortality despite a potential serum lactate elevation. One of the biggest controversies was the treating physician could exclude a patient if they felt administration of a balanced crystalloid solution could make their patient's hyperkalemia worse. This allayed the incorrect perception by some physicians that saline is better in patients with hyperkalemia, especially since the amount of potassium in balanced fluids is less than or equal to 5 millimoles per liter. So going into the secondary analysis of the SMART trial, it ended up including patients with hyperkalemia, which is defined as a potassium level greater than or equal to 6.5 millimoles per liter, or AKI at ICU admissions, was conducted evaluating the effect of fluid composition on the incidence of hyperkalemia and renal replacement therapy. Inclusion criteria consisted of patients with hyperkalemia, uh, similarly to the SMART trial, or acute kidney injury, defined as stage two or greater based off the Kidaigo criteria who received balanced fluids or saline. The results showed similar rates of severe hyperkalemia defined as greater than or equal to 
seven millimoles per liter or newer worsening AKI between balanced crystalloids and status. There is a significantly lower incidence of renal replacement therapy with balanced solutions among patients with hyperkalemia at ICU admission and patients with AKI at ICU admission. So in conclusion, use of balanced crystalloids was not associated with a higher incidence of severe hyperkalemia. In my opinion, even though this was only a subgroup analysis, I feel this is relevant to explain the providers that the acid-base effects of isotonic crystalloids are more important for potassium homeostasis than that relatively small amount of potassium in the fluid. Future trials may need to provide more supportive data, but I think balanced fluids aren't a contraindication to hyperkalemic or AKI patients. Love it. I completely agree. LR only has four milliequivalents of potassium in it. We've been fighting this fighting this argument for a while. Thank you so much for our colleagues from Nashville, including Joanna Stallings, for publishing this. I love this. Hopefully, we're going to be able to uh, fight the the good fight against abnormal saline. Um, all right. Woo! Six-pack of studies. All right. We finished those. We got the cans to the side here. So now our sections are really, really good. So we're going to kind of get going here. Alyssa's going to lead us off, kind of talk about anticoagulation and reversal within the let it bleed subsection here. So the first four studies are going to kind of follow the same theme, the use of PCC. So Alyssa's going to kind of take the first two and highlight those studies. And then I'll give a, a quick line or two on, on a couple more that are, that are pertinent in the same realm. Perfect. Thanks, Nick. And I really love being able to do this section. Anticoag and anticoag reversal is one of my favorite things. So I'm very excited about this. So this first study is a comparison of low versus high dose four factor PCC for factor 10A inhibitor associated bleeding. So it was published in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. And although Andexin Alpha is currently FDA approved for the reversal of factor 10A inhibitors, we all know that there are currently concerns with both efficacy and cost of using this agent, and it's not even formulary in many institutions. So previous studies have described success with four-factor PCC for the reversal of, of factor 10A inhibitors, and these doses have ranged anywhere from 25 to 35 units per kilogram to up to 50 units per kilogram. So this was a retrospective cohort study from the University of Kentucky that compared a low dose, which is 20 to 34 units per kilogram, versus a high dose of 35 to 15 units per kilogram of K-Centra specifically for reversal. And they assessed um, the outcomes for specifically apixaban and rivaroxaban of hemostasis for critical bleeding or post-op bleeding reversal for emergent procedures. So the mean dose of this in the study for the low dose strategy was just about 25 units per kilogram for the low-dose strategy, and the high-dose strategy was about 50 units per kilogram. And they found no difference in hemostasis by dosing strategy. So no difference was found in secondary endpoints either, as well as hospital mortality. So I think the study really adds to the existing literature that really supports efficacy and safety of four-factor PCCs for reversal of apixaban, rivaroxaban, and other factor 10A inhibitors, and may make us a little bit more comfortable with using lower dosing ranges as low as 25 units per kilogram. Yeah, a couple things I want to I want to point out here. So this was done at the University of Kentucky here. We got hemostasis in about 80% of patients right right below just about, you know, 76 to 78. Uh, about 50% of them had intracranial hemorrhages. Um, and 
Shout out to amazing pharmacists across the country. The time from order to administration was less than 30 minutes. So that is just kudos to that EDT. Okay. Yeah. I just had to shout out a couple of those things here. Okay. Perfect. So staying on our PCT, this next study is an eval of fixed dosing versus variable dosing four-factor PCT for emergent warfarin reversal. And this was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So there's a lot of data and studies that have been published recent, recently looking at fixed-dose four-factor PCT for warfarin, ranging from 1,000 units to 1,500 units. But what is unique about this study is that it's a prospective randomized study. So it takes place in Minnesota, and it's a single-center, open-label, prospective randomized control trial. And the subjects randomized to four-factor PCC at a fixed dose of 1,500 units or the FDA-approved variable dosing regimen for warfarin reversal, which is a 25 to 50 units per kilogram. And their primary efficacy outcome of reversal success was defined as post-intervention INR of less than or equal to 1.5, so a little bit of an aggressive outcome. Um, and they included 71 subjects and had an overall reversal success in that fixed dose group of only 62% while the reversal success in the variable dose group was almost 90%. So success in that fixed mm. dose group was significantly lower than the rate of success in the variable dose group. And this varies from all of the other data that we have in the study, which shows that fixed dose four-factor PCC is safe and effective for warfarin reversal. And really, I see a few potential reasons for lower reversal success in this study, the primary being a high number of obese patients. So almost 30% of patients in the study weighed greater than 100 kilograms. And I think that suggests that we really need to be cautious using fixed-dose four-factor PCC in our obese, morbidly obese patients. And probably take into consideration, too, your indication for fixed dosing, the study being similar in that they had a high number of patients with an intracranial hemorrhage. Yeah, as much as you know, everyone knows this is a pro PCC pod. We do not like indexing <laughs> here. Um, we got to include all the research. Um, so I was going through here. It's like you know, whenever you're you love a drug, you're going to try to find all the reasons in these studies. <laughs> so two things stood out to me. The weight is a big key there, right? Because that that first study you said the average body weight was about eighty to eighty five kilos, whereas here you know you'd put that a little bit higher. And then you know those I, some of these INRs were really high right? Like mm-hmm. five of them were greater than eight. So I think not only thinking about their weight, thinking about that INR, um, maybe if they're, you know, like where I'm at, the if the INR is a certain point, we do a higher fixed dose. So that might be something to, con- to consider. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, um, don't love it. I'm glad it got published because we always need, you know, so what we're learning is that this is not a 100% first ballot hall of famer. Okay. So the fixed PCC dosing has, has one or two studies that aren't in favor of it, but we're going to keep fighting the good fight here for, for fixed dose PCC. I mean, this hemostasis and the variable dosing, that's amazing. Almost 90%. Yeah. Um, so two other kind of in the, in the PCC world here. So there was a um, a pharmacotherapy study that compared low versus um, standard, which was basically 25 units per kilo to 50 units per kilo of K-Centra um, in specifically an intracranial hemorrhage for patients taking factor 10A inhibitors. So they were looking at patients with intracranial hemorrhage within a central Texas healthcare system. They include 93 patients 
Both groups had greater than 80% hemostasis, about 82 and 84%. No difference in other outcomes. So boom, we're putting it back to um, maybe a little less is better with having the low or the 25 units per kilo. Kind of similar to what the what the first study was looking at. This was just specifically in intracranial hemorrhage. And then I loved this study that was published in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy. It was... Uh, um, published by pharmacists from the University of Rochester, and they looked at the association between giving four-factor PCC or K-Centra to patients with at least one ICH exclusion criteria and the effect on patient outcomes. So I think a lot of times for, you know, blood factor or stewardship within the ED or the ICUs, one of the things we do is like, okay, what is this, you know, you're arguing is this futile? Are we using this high cost medication where we don't think it's going to really do anything. And so I love this practice-based research kind of taking what we do on a daily basis and studying it and seeing what actually happened. And um, a little over, they had 167 patients, a little over 60% of them had at least one ICX exclusion criteria. And they looked at a composite endpoint of in-hospital mortality or a modified Rankin scale score of five or six. And it occurred much more frequently in the group that had an exclusion criteria, 75% compared to 40%. So hopefully this leads to more maybe you know, positive goals of care discussions and you know, avoiding kind of giving these costly medications. Okay. So we were shifting from from the PCC world here, and let's kind of shift here for a little bit. We're kind of going into anticoagulation with some renal dysfunction. So Alyssa, go ahead and close us out with the last two studies in the uh, let it bleed section you were going to talk about for us. Perfect. So this first one is a pharmacotherapy journal which compared Lovenox versus unvaccinated heparin for VTE prophylaxis, specifically in renally impaired ICU patients. So we know our ICU patients with renal insufficiencies are both more likely to develop VTEs and are at an increased risk for bleeding. And there's conflicting data out there on whether Lovenox or unvaccinated heparin is the preferred agent for VTE prophylaxis in this specific population. So this was a single-center retrospective cohort study out of Detroit looking at ICU patients with renal impairment who received VTE prophylaxis with either Lovenox or unvaccinated heparin. And their primary outcome was the proportion of patients experiencing a major bleeding event. So overall, 460 patients, including the study of good size, they found no difference in major bleeding events or rates of venous thromboembolism between Lovenox and unfractionated heparin. However, after adjusting for confounding factors, including baseline hemoglobin procedure and ICU platelet-nator, um, Lovenox actually did show a significant increase in major bleeding. So I do want to point out that's kind of unique about the study is that they had a large percentage of patients who were in acute kidney injury. Their average Lovenox dose was actually 39 milligrams. So most patients in the Lovenox group actually weren't adjusted renally from that 40 milligram dose, probably because they had some sort of elevated serum creatinine, but still had a creatinine clearance greater than 30 mils per minute. So I'd really take the data from this trial to suggest caution in the use of Lovenox in patients who have renal impairment, such as an AKI, who don't quite fit that criteria for renally adjusting Lovenox down to that 30 milligrams. The thing that was very funny to me is when you look at the patient characteristics, there was a 
much higher use of anoxaparin in the surgical. I'm guessing maybe there's yeah. a trauma ICU component there, right? Anoxaparin. Um, I think that's just uh, repeatedly slammed into people's heads. So yeah, I think this is evidence, right? The crowning lags behind. So renal function may be worse than we think. It makes sense if it's renally excreted that it might increase that incidence. So maybe not dose adjusting, or if you see that crowning going up, even if the crowning clearance is above 30, maybe preemptively making that switch. Perfect. So again, sticking kind of with the kidney topic, the next study is published in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy, and they look at DOAC use in both CKD and dialysis patients for the treatment of venous thromboembolism. So this continues to be a controversial debate, whether it's more beneficial to use a DOAC or warfarin in this specific patient population for the treatment of VTE. So this is a systematic review with nine studies included. And in terms of results, they found no significant difference in overall bleeding when comparing DOAX to warfarin in all nine of these studies. There was, however, an increased risk of bleeding as kidney function decreased for kind of both agents. And I want to chat really quick about each individual DOAX that was looked at in this systematic review. So the first being apixaban, which showed a potential superiority as compared to warfarin in rates of major bleeding in patients with end-stage renal disease or an EGFR of less than 25, which we've already kind of seen the data on the use of apixaban in end-stage renal disease and know that it has the potential to be beneficial there. The next being dabigatran, which I think is really the least favorable DOAC to use in our CKD and dialysis population as it's majority renally cleared and has a very prolonged half-life with severe kidney impairment. And then rivaroxaban is about a third eliminated by the kidneys. And there is some kind of case reports on the use of a 10 or 15 milligram adjusted dose for the treatment of venous thromboembolism. But there's really no real clinical data to support this kind of dose adjustment at this time. So I think this trial just kind of highlights the need for larger randomized control trials or cohort studies for the use of DOAX for the treatment of VTE in the specific patient population. And at this time, there's not enough data or evidence really to suggest for routine use of dabigatran, rivaroxaban, or adoxaban. But apixaban could definitely be an appropriate alternative to warfarin in patients who have kind of that moderate to severe CKD or end-stage renal disease on dialysis. You know, I love, I love good review articles like this for topics that, you know, we use every day, but we may not keep up with the literature of it. I think it's always nice to take a peek at these and see what's changed. And to be honest, it seems like it's kind of still what we, what we know if we're going to use one of these, probably stick with a Pixaban, but not great evidence for, for a lot of the, a lot of the others, especially if we're, if we're treating any type of active VTE. So, yep, it's always good to refresh, but it seems like it's kind of um, business as usual, at least, uh, at least for now. Now, the last article to kind of quickly highlight within the let it bleed section is an evidence-based review on the management of hepatic uh, coagulopathy in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine out of the uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital. You know, they dig into the use of blood products or, you know, hemostatic agents or factor products and things. And and I think uh, there's plenty of things to dive into here, lots of... of um, tables and pictures and things. But uh, one big takeaway, um, I think those who of us who deal with patients with cirrhosis are kind of familiar with, but don't use standard coagulation labs like APTT or PTINR to manage coagulopathy um, in those with hepatic dysfunction, right? You need to use maybe some more um, personalized kind of targeted measures there. Yeah, 
All right, um, Alyssa, don't go anywhere. Um, hang tight. We're going to come back to you a little bit later. Um, I think we're going to switch it up and have Nico join us to talk about a few sections here. So um, the next topic is it's kind of sepsis. It's maybe hemodynamics. It's a sprinkle of random. So we're going to call this section start me up, right? We're going to boost everything up. We're going to get us up and going. So Nico, kind of take us away and let's, uh, let's talk about the first article you were looking at. Sure. So the first article I'm looking at is angiotensin two and vasopressin for vasodilatory shock. And this was a nice review article and intriguing because the use of non-catecholamine vasopressors focusing on angiotensin two and vasopressin for vasodilatory shock um, has had some literature in the past, and I think it's great to show an overview. So um, Dr. Majev Havner is the pharmacist lead author for this study, published in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. So this review article emphasized the primary literature in specific patient populations that both vasopressin and angiotensin II would benefit. In patients with septic shock and renal failure, vasopressin found significant improvement in the rates of renal replacement therapy, but non-improvement on kidney failure-free days, while angiotensin II findings suggest that it may be renal protective and may benefit septic patients who require renal replacement therapy. In cardiac surgery patients, vasopressin was shown to improve mortality and decrease major complications such as AFib and vasodilatory shock after cardiac surgery. Angiotensin II post hoc analysis of the ATHOS-3 trial showed a mortality benefit based on an Apache 2 score greater than 30. I think it's important to point out that the Apache 2 score and organ system remains unclear whether the organ failure is particular to one system or any organism, organ system, and still contributes the same mortality benefit. The biggest takeaway for me is emphasizing being careful not to draw conclusions about the efficacy of this approach through individual study results. Targeting personalized vasopressor therapy with angiotensin 2 in AKI patients Apache 2 scores greater than 30 in targeted therapy with vasopressin in those undergoing cardiac surgery may be beneficial in those populations. I do feel these agents could be added to patients who continue to decompensate after increased norepinephrine requirements or patients who have a history of uncontrolled AFib. Future research studies in septic patients who are on ACE inhibitors or patients with pulmonary pathology, such as those with severe pneumonia or ARDS, would provide insight so what patient population could benefit from angiotensin 2 and vasopressin? Yeah, this, this article has an awesome photo that kind of details the mechanism of action of both angiotensin 2 and vasopressin. I think it's got a great table with references that, that um, allow you to do like some further reading on some of the landmark studies of these agents. I think what we know and what you know, guests who have come on have, have kind of told us or hinted at is that the future looks like personalized or targeted medicine, right? And that includes for hemodynamic management, right? Personalized blood pressure goals um, and those kinds of things. But I'm not sure we still know how that will look. You know, I'm still convinced the angiotensin two kind of priced themselves out of the market and didn't allow the, us to a lot of times to use it up front where I think it could have more of a benefit. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately, you know, one of the big takeaways is I thought this was a great review, but I think there's still a lot of um, research and kind of publications that that need to happen. And kind of in the same realm here, um, 
there's a, an umbrella review that kind of looks at the use of vasopressors and inotropes and septic shock. It was published in the Journal of Critical Care. Um, especially anybody that takes learners, I really like these review articles because I think it helps highlight landmark or impactful studies within some kind of specific section of, of critical care. So I always like to give this to like learners and they can look at the reference list and start to kind of build their library. So I always think these articles that talk about the history of things are kind of always interesting to me, nothing to specifically highlight, but just one to maybe kind of tuck away. So Nico, our next article talks about lowering blood pressure and sepsis? And I'm a, I'm a little confused, so I'm going to let you help clarify this for us. Sure. So the article titled, Effects of Ultra-Short-Acting Beta Blockers on Mortality in Patients with Sepsis with Persistent Tachycardia Despite Initial Resuscitation. So this article analyzes the thought on whether beta blockers should be used in septic patients with persistent tachycardia despite adequate fluid resuscitation. This is Systematic review and meta-analysis that was published in CHEST included 613 patients from seven studies. The use of ultra-short-acting beta blockers, Esmol or Landolol, in patients with sepsis, despite initial resuscitation, was associated with a significantly lower 28-day mortality rate. It would have been beneficial to know what defined the initial resuscitation, determine if they were adequately resuscitated or not, but the author unfortunately does not specify the initial dose and titration parameters varied through each article, but most goals were to decrease the heart rate to be less than 95 to 100 beats per minute. The risk of bias caused the mortality benefit to be controversial since two trials that influenced mortality were shown to have high risk of performance and detection bias. Overall, I have heard mixed reviews from other attending physicians during my residency on whether to initiate beta blockers in septic patients that are persistently tachycardic my practice remains not treating persistent tachycardia. Septic patients could be hemodynamically unstable, and I wouldn't want to worsen their hemodynamics with a beta blocker. If the patient was to convert into AFib, then my antiarrhythmic of choice would be amiodarone, as long as there aren't any contraindications. I think more robust data with larger sample sizes and less bias need to be conducted. What are your thoughts, Nick, on the meta-analysis? Does this change your views on beta blockers and septic patients? No. This doesn't change. This doesn't change my my thoughts at all. To be honest, I feel like this is treating the number and not and not the cause. Even though I mean, yes, we it it lowered. You know, yes, this this you know meta analysis said that it has some um, lowered mortality. Um, I just think it's not something that routinely that I've done, and when I have done it, I have gotten zero success. I know that's a little anecdotal, but yeah, that's not at least in my practice habit. Not something that we kind of routinely do. Um, so kind of in that, in that same realm, kind of in this sepsis hemodynamic kind of, um, phase, there was a, a retrospective article from the Cleveland clinic with uh, multiple pharmacist, pharmacist authors that were, that was published in chest. And, you know, most of us use continuous infusion vasopressors, right? Like a norepinephrine infusion, for example. But, uh, this study specifically looked at the effect of using like an IV push, specifically IV push phenylephrine prior to the infusion initiating um, in septic shock patients. And they matched a little over 420 patients. And what they found is that patients who received an IV push of phenylephrine, they did have a higher rate of hemodynamic stability at three hours, but it did not happen faster, right? So giving the IV push didn't get to your goal faster, which I think all of us think would have been what happened. Um, 
And then you did have a high rate of stability at three hours, but then not 12 hours. So it didn't sustain. I mean, there's no difference in, um, like I said, the time to hemodynamic stability and then actually a higher ICU mortality. So this may actually kind of add to the to the evidence or the puzzle that maybe phenylephrine and septic shock might not be our, our best vasoactive option, um, but kind of a little, kind of an interesting article. Um, and then, Nico, there was a, there was an article. Uh, we're kind of in the grab bag section here, so kind of close us out with your with the last two articles um, in the start me up section. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm going to talk about a review article that looked at ventricular arrhythmias in the intensive care units. So this is one of my favorite. Um, being in a critical care residency, I love being in the cardiac intensive care unit, and. Um, I think this is really pertinent to being in the cardiac intensive care unit. So um, this article was published in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. This review article encompassed a significant amount of information regarding mechanisms, mechanisms of tachyarrhythmias such as non-sustained and sustained ventricular tachycardia, supraventricular tachycardias, and ventricular fibrillation methods to diagnose tachyarrhythmias, and major interventions and management available for ventricular arrhythmias. They highlighted the 2020 Superventricular Tachycardia European Guidelines and the updated classifications of antiarrhythmics. There were great examples of different arrhythmias associated with explanations of the mechanisms and how to visualize them on an EKG. I understand pharmacists won't be analyzing EKGs as thoroughly as cardiologists, think it's important to recognize the name of the rhythm and the type of treatments. What do you think, Nick? Well, a quick question before I tell you my thoughts. Have you, have you ever like looked at an EKG or is that something that you have, you have you ever acted on that before? Yeah. So I think the biggest time that I would say I'm looking at EKG the most are during code blues. So I had this one instance that when I was, um, at a code blue, uh, I always try to look at the EKG to make sure that this is a unshockable or shockable rhythm. And the patient was initially in an unshockable rhythm. I forget exactly what specifically, but they ended up turning into a shockable rhythm. And I was able to make the intervention to reach out to the, or to communicate to the team that this is, they are in a shockable rhythm and we're able to shock the patient and get them out of their underlying ventricular arrhythmia, which ended up working out great. So I think just the littlest things that you would think that, you know, you don't have to be an EKG expert to be able to make an impact, especially, I mean, this worked out at a code blue and I was able to convert someone back from, <clears throat> uh, from a ventricular arrhythmia to normal just by knowing um, just the basic arrhythmias. That's an amazing story. Wow. That's awesome. That's a great catch. I think that's something that you should, you should feel proud of. Um, but I think it's, it's good to have an idea of it, right? Because you'll have pharmacy positive EKGs. I joke that like if I can see what's happening on an EKG or a CT scan, then something bad is happening. If I'm able to see what's happening. So I think it's good to have an idea. You know, this is a physician written review article. So I think if you're looking for more from like a pharmacist perspective, definitely go back. I have a podcast on ventricular arrhythmias with Matt Wanat, um, who's out of Houston down in Texas. I thought that was a great episode. But yeah, definitely. I think it's a, it's a really good um thorough kind of approach to ventricular arrhythmias and things. Perfect. So um, I can go into my last article, uh, the random article. So the last one is top emergency medicine pharmacotherapy articles of 2020. 
I thoroughly enjoyed this article that was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine because this article focuses on the purpose of this podcast. It gives great overviews of the 15 most impactful articles for the ED in 2020. Also, this is a huge shout out to 12 different pharmacists who wrote and reviewed the article, including friend of the pod, Brian Gilbert. My favorite article highlighted was ketamine versus hominate in the peri-intubation hypotension. This article looked at the hemodynamic impact of both induction agents and septic patients requiring intubation. The study showed ketamine with higher rates of post-intubation hypotension. So even though these findings are preliminary results, I believe this should still cause pause for ED providers to recommend ketamine in hypotensive septic patients due to the catecholamine depletion. Uh, my next two favorite articles that were reviewed were transamic acid, the effect of out-of-hospital transamic acid versus placebo on six-month functional neurologic outcomes, specifically in patients with moderate or severe TBIs, and intravenous alteplase for stroke with an unknown time of onset, guided by advanced imaging. These articles analyze different patient populations who receive transamic acid or alteplase. Nick, what were your favorite articles highlighted in this review? You know, I liked the the Atomidate and Ketamine article, but to be honest, like I would say that I really liked this, not just because of the articles they're highlighting, but just the concept of it, right? Like this is this is the sort of thing, right? It's so hard to keep up on things. Having articles like this to know what are some of the biggest things can just help all of us make sure that we're kind of as up to date as we can. You mentioned Brian Brian Gilbert, one of the authors. I would be extremely remiss to not shout out Tara Flack, one of my uh, current um, coworkers um, at my at the at the shop that I work at now. So shout out to Tara. Um, she's the absolute best. And then seeing her on the article. Um, so I think it's more just a kudos of, of compiling and, and doing this. This is probably something obviously that they do routinely. Um, they mentioned that it's articles of 2020. I'm assuming this is something that happens routinely. And then of course, the name of it's so perfect, staying informed with the informed, the ED is capitalized. So that's even perfect. Okay. So we made it out of the start me up section. We let it bleed. Now we're going to kind of take a, a turn to the ventilator blues here. We're going to talk about Pattis, um, and Nico's going to stay with us and do another section here. Um, so, Nico, start us off with some, some discussion on two interesting neuromuscular blockade articles. Sure. So the first one I'm going to be looking at is fixed dose first train of four monitoring with neuromuscular blockers. So once again, shout out to all the pharmacists and friends of the pod for this single center retrospective cohort study in the journal of critical care, comparing the titrations to satricarium via fixed dose versus train of four. Previous trials had controversial results with 90-day mortality, but both trials used a fixed dose to satricarium infusion of 37.5 milligrams per hour for 48 hours. Due to the drug shortages, institutions have been implementing the use of titration neuromuscular blockers based on the train of four. The purpose of this trial was to assess if there were differences in ventilator and clinical outcomes among patients receiving fixed dose and titrated neuromuscular blockers. Of the 167 patients included in the study, 75% received cystachicurium via train of four titration, while 25% received fixed dose at a set rate of 37.5 milligrams per hour. Fixed dose in titrated cystachicarium were associated with similar changes in the PaO2-FiO2 ratio 
assessed at 24 and 48 hours. Fixed dose was associated with a threefold increase in drug exposure, despite similar durations of therapy. Even though this is a single-center retrospective analysis, I think this is an area for cost savings and improved long-term benefits. Previous trials have had similar results comparing fixed dose and train of four titration with a cost difference of approximately $2,800. You can reduce the risk of critical illness polyneuropathy or cardiovascular events and reduce the additional fluid intake that could contribute to worse outcomes, specifically in our ARDS patients. I believe providers should have the option to decide what way they want neuromuscular blockers to be dosed. I would encourage providers to choose titration via train of four based on the limited data described. What are your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, this is the this is the real life study of the Acuracist trial versus the Rose trial, and this was my first humbling experience. Um, I used to die on the hill of doing the fixed dose, the thirty seven point five milligrams per hour no titration, all the things that was the hill I died on. And then the Rose trial came out. So I think this is a, you know, looking at their use of it and comparing these things. And they found, they found the exact same thing. So, um, shout out to university of Kentucky. Um, they're just absolutely crushing it with all their publications and, and things here. But this is a, this is showing us what some of the other articles confirmed that we maybe don't need to use the big, big, um, cystatricurium dose that um, we used to argue from the 2010 Acuracis trial. No, I definitely agree with you, Nick, 110% on that. So going into our next uh, neuromuscular blocker topic is looking at rocaronium continuous infusions. So this study was conducted by our pharmacy colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. It was a study published in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy that looked at rocaronium continuous infusions that compared critically ill patients with multi-organ failure to patients without multi-organ failure. I thought this was a great multi-center retrospective chart review that was able to characterize the dosing, utilization, and safety profile of continuous infusion rocaronium. Most of the patients at baseline were found in the medical and surgical ICUs who had ARDS or refractory hypoxemia with a median PAO2-FIO2 ratio of 93, requiring neuromuscular blockade. 37% met criteria for multi-organ failure, defined as having greater than one organ failure. 41% of patients had one organ failure, and 22% of patients did not exhibit any signs or symptoms of organ failure. The median starting and maximum dose of rocaronium was 8 micrograms per kilogram per minute, it was intriguing that 64% of train of four measurements were a T0 or T1 with 75% in the multi-organ failure group compared with 50% in the non-multi-organ failure group. Also, it's important to point out the median time to recovery in all 27 patients was more than twice as long for multi-organ failure compared with the non-multi-organ failure group. But that could be skewed since two patients remained at a T0 for 15 to 23 hours. Even though there were limitations to the trial, I think the authors did a great job developing this trial based off previous literature and adding that rocaronium is concerning for septic patients with multiple organ failures due to its dependence on organ function by increasing the volume of distribution and elimination halfway. Hopefully there will be continued research on this specific topic in the future. I always like these articles, right? When we deal with drug shortages, these articles help give us information on how 
what to expect and it makes sense, right? So Cetric Hiram undergoes Hoffman elimination. It's independent of any of the organs. So it would make sense that something that was dependent on organs would hang around a little bit longer in our more sick patients. But it's it's always nice to see in writing and make sure because sometimes what we think has happened and what will actually happen um, aren't necessarily the same here. Um, so now we're going to kind of, um, we're talking about neuromuscular blockade. We kind of did that in an opposite order, right? Never, never paralyzed before sedating, but that's what we just did. So, um, as we keep going on our ventilator blues here, um, Nico, take us away kind of talking about sedation and the effect on, on pressure. Sure. So we're going to be looking at the effect of deepening sedation on the intra-abdominal, uh, pressure. So, so instead of focusing on neuromuscular blocker, we're moving to sedation. So specifically, this article focuses on the use of deepening sedation with propofol and its effect on intra-abdominal pressure, or IAP. Intra-abdominal hypertension is frequent in intensive care patients with a prevalence of nearly 50% during the first two weeks in ICU. IAP has been associated with worse outcomes such as abdominal compartment syndrome. This prospective interventional multicenter pilot study of 40 patients analyzed the benefit of a bolus dose and subsequent infusion of propofol. The bolus dose was 1 milligram per kilogram based off of lean body weight and a maintenance infusion initiated at 50 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Use of sedative drugs other than propofol were allowed provided that RAS was negative 4 or higher on study inclusion. The primary hypothesis was that deepening of sedation resulted in a reduction of 3 millimeters of mercury of IABP at 15, 30, and 60 minutes. Pertinent baseline characteristics were the majority of the patient population were obese white males that had a grade 1 intra-abdominal hypertension, which is defined as having an IAP of 12 to 15. By 30 minutes of propofol infusion, IAP was 14 with a statistically non-significant change of a decrease of one millimeter of mercury. Overall, I feel this trial doesn't change my practice in patients with intra-abdominal hypertension. In my sick I had a few patient, cases of patients that were concerned for abdominal compartment syndrome and were provided a novel sedation with fentanyl and propofol in these patients. Even though propofol was shown to decrease IAP minimally, I'll continue to use propofol in that specific patient population. Yeah, not much effect on on our uh, pressure there. And then um, when you actually pull this study, um, shout out to Nico for doing the math for everybody because the three milligrams per kilo per hour equals fifty micrograms per kilos per minute. So thanks for making everyone's life a, a little bit easier as we as we talked about that uh, about that study. And yeah, that makes sense. I don't think that's going to be practice changing at all. Um, the the last study I kind of wanted to highlight in the ventilator blues section was the discordance between respiratory drive and sedation depth. So this study was publishing critical care medicine with uh, Amy Zerba as first author. And it looks at the idea that deep sedation can reduce your respiratory drive. And, and they found actually that sedation depth is a very poor surrogate for the respiratory drive and can actually vary from low to high despite deep sedation. It could vary based on, you know, even if you have low sedation. So, even though we don't have great ways to measure respiratory drive at the bedside currently, it's looking like the surrogate markers that we're currently using uh, may not be the best. So that was a really, a really interesting article. 
And then how do we close out every literature review series pod? Well, of course, we're going to the front of the fridge and talking about all things related to pharmacists. So Alyssa, welcome back. Take us away and talk about some articles here where we're talking about all the great pharmacists. Thank you. So I want to start off talking about an article published in the Journal of Critical Care. And this is assessment of fluid resuscitation on time to hemodynamic stability in obese patients with septic shock. So we know current fluid resuscitation recommendations are 30 mils per kilogram based on actual body weight. And this is crystalloid fluid within the first hour of sepsis onset, regardless of the patient's weight. So one detail yet to be addressed in the guidelines is whether administration of that 30 mils per kilo of crystalloids um, really actually improves clinical outcomes in our obese patients. Mm-hmm. Because as we know, excessive fluid administration has also been shown to worsen outcomes. So as possible, we're overdosing these obese patients with fluid. So objective of this study was to compare time to hemodynamic stability in obese patients with septic shock who received either less than 30 mils per kilo or greater than or equal to 30 mils per kilo of initial fluid resuscitation. So for results, the greater than or equal to 30 mils per kilo group had a shorter time to hemodynamic stability and overall lower risk of in-hospital death. So I think that is definitely an interesting result. Yeah, However, I wasn't expecting ex- that, were you? I know. No, I was not. Yeah. I think that this exploratory subgroup analysis does kind of explain that a little bit more. So they classified patients by dosing strategy, so actual body weight, adjusted body weight, or ideal body weight. And comparing actual body weight to ideal body weight, they found that the actual body weight patients had that shorter time to hemodynamic stability and lower risk of in-hospital death. But when comparing actual body weight to adjusted body weight, there was no benefit either or. So I think that these results results suggest that following current guidelines of 30 mils per kilogram based on actual body weight may be beneficial in obese patients. I don't think we're necessarily hurting them. We definitely do need further comparisons between actual and adjusted body weight for this patient population. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people listening that may use adjusted body weight for their, yeah. I know that's something that I, that we use in RED. So kind yeah. of kind of interesting. I think this is different than what we would expect and maybe you know, curious, um, on the weight extremes, if we would still be, still be kind of seeing this. <laughs> yeah. with like a BMI of 80. Yeah. Probably not good to use it. Yeah. Actual. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's exactly right. Um, okay. So we're kind of staying in the same realm here. We can never, ever talk about fluids without bringing in albumin. So take it away. <laughs> so this was published in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy and looks at the impact of hyperoncotic albumin on duration of vasopressor support in patients with septic shock. So we know albumin has not been shown to reduce mortality in sepsis or septic shock patients, but a recent tertiary analysis of a larger trial suggested that it may actually reduce duration of vasopressor use in our patients with septic shock. And we know the longer you're on vasopressors, the more higher you're at risk of having adverse outcomes from those. So this study used mass cohort groups, and they found that the days alive and free of vasopressors were actually similar between albumin and the no albumin groups, and as was in-hospital mortality, which we expected. So receiving albumin was not associated um, with an improvement in um, vasopressor time or mortality. However, albumin use was associated with actually fewer ventilator-free and ICU-free days. Um, wait, 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 wait. And this, 
Yeah, so a strange outcome, but maybe explained by a few things. So this trial was not randomized. So albumin may have been preferentially administered to kind of the more severely ill patients, resulting in those worse outcomes. And then there is the possible um, association of pulmonary edema in this population after receiving albumin as well. So a few potential reasons why that outcome may have happened. So additional research definitely needs to be performed in this and possibly looking into timing of albumin administration. So that was not um, necessary in this study, but I think looking at its use early in shock versus maybe in the resolving shock period could kind of help clarify the effectiveness in where in our management of shock it may be useful. So I want to take a quick little detour. We're gonna we're gonna take a little trauma corner. We'll call this our our street fighting man section within <laughs> the front of the fridge. And I just want to talk about two things. So pharmacists from MUSC they publish in Annals of Pharmacotherapy a study looking at multimodal pain management. Right? Does methocarbamol, a skeletal muscle relaxant, reduce opioid requirements in young patients with traumatic rib fractures? Right? Those young. It's always young males that have the worst pain. Right? But those in those <laughs> young patients, um, and actually not only reduce the cumulative opioid requirements as well as time spent in the hospital. So another another point for multimodal um, pain management there. And then sticking with trauma patients, looking at um, in trauma patients who were receiving enoxaparin 0.5 mg per kg um, sub-Q, Q12 as DVT prophylaxis, 91% of patients at anti-10A goals anti-10A peaks within goal. So this study that was published in pharmacotherapy by a few pharmacists from Augusta, Georgia, kind of make the case that we may not need to order as many of those anti-10A levels if it's dosed appropriately. Although that's a, it's a very hot button topic if you, if you talk to a lot of uh, our trauma or surgical colleagues here. Um, okay, Alyssa, wrap up the front of the fridge and let's put kind of our last, uh, our last study up there with some scotch tape. Perfect. So this is an evaluation of dosing strategies and trough concentrations of vancomycin in patients who are undergoing um, CVVH or continuous neovenous chemofiltration. And this was published in pharmacotherapy. So current dose recommendations for vancomycin dosing in patients on CRRT really vary widely from um, random dosing to Q12, Q48 hours, and even continuous infusions of vancomycin. And concentrations in our patients on CRRT are actually often subtherapeutic. And as ultrafiltration rates increase, vancomycin clearance likely increases as well. So the purpose of this study was to evaluate current dosing practices of pharmacists for patients being treated with CDVH and vancomycin and try and develop guidelines for optimal dosing and monitoring of VANC to improve our target trough attainment and to reduce pharmacist workload. So they compared two different dosing strategies, the first being based on random levels. So kind of getting a level every time you think you need to redose and assessing how much you'll need to give, how often you'll need to redose, or a scheduled vancomycin dosing. And they found that the target vancomycin achievement um, of a trough of 15 to 20 micrograms per milliliter actually occurred more frequently when vancomycin was scheduled. So at a dose of 15 to 22 mg per kg every 12 to 24 hours, and this was based on ultrafiltration rate. So in conclusion, I think in our CRRT patients using a scheduled vancomycin dosing based on their ultrafiltration rate may achieve target trough concentrations more frequently and can also kind of alleviate the time and cost associated with frequent vancomycin monitoring for these patients. 
And I do, if you have the time to look at this trial, they have a very nice table for which they base their dosing on specific ultrafiltration rate, which I think could be helpful if you're ever dosing vancomycin in these patients. Not only do I think it's helpful, I love that pharmacists wrote this study because in the secondary endpoints, um, one of them is notes per patient and notes per <laughs> patient per day. We are all trying to write less notes. So I love that this is showing us that if you schedule your regimen, you're going to write less notes. Your patients are going to get less levels. That's less charges, right, that they're having to fight with later. So, um, yeah, a great, great kind of idea to make sure that what we're doing is safe and also kind of reduce everyone's workload here. So great, great work. And I agree, this is definitely one to look at and kind of tuck away, especially if you're kind of messing with um, your protocols or things like that. Um, so really good. Um, we made it, we made it through our Rolling Stone themed Uh literature review series, May, June, Alyssa and Nico, Uh strong work here. So, uh, you all, and people know from the intro here, right? You all finished residency. You have the kind of your first post-residency job here. So, so let us all let the listeners behind the curtain here. What was the first purchase you made after finishing residency when you got that first real paycheck that was for you could be anything could be anything from what like a car to breakfast and everything in between uh Alyssa, why don't you start and nico we'll have you go next so technically i upgraded to a much nicer apartment prior to starting my new job so that was a little bit of a rough transition but once mm-hmm. i got my first paycheck you know i was able to buy the proper furniture to furnish my new apartment oh yeah so you're realizing that as an adult furniture is way more <laughs> expensive than you ever imagined yeah. And none of it's in stock right now. So that's right. Okay, wait. Follow up question: What's your what's your favorite piece that'll get delivered in November? Um, a patio set. So it'll probably be snowing by the time I can actually sit on my patio. <laughs> you know what? If you're stubborn like me, though, you're gonna set it up and <laughs> dang it, you're gonna sit on that patio even if it's snowing. I've, you're just gonna have blankets I've, on. Yeah. I've considered buying one of those like little portable heater things. I've seen one on someone's porch before, and I think that is a good investment to make. <laughs> I love that. Nico, what about you? Well, I wish I could say I spent that much money after my first paycheck. <laughs> I got myself a new pair of shoes because I had a pair of shoes two years through residency, and they were beat up. The sole was ripping and stuff, so I had to buy a new pair. Oh. So I ended up buying a new pair of shoes. And then I also... What is it? Wait, wait, wait. wait. I'm a sneakerhead, so you got to let me know. What's your... What pair of shoes did you get? Let us in. So, I never bought Asics before, but I'm flat-footed. I needed something with some good support. I was reading some reviews. I heard good things about these. So, I got the... I think the Asics... I think they're called the Gel Cayanos, but they're like a newer version and a lighter weight. So, you know, when I could start running again and, you know, after residency, being able to do things again... Uh, get back involved with that. <laughs> Wait, so the real question is if they're Asics, how many different colors of neon are on the are on the shoes? <laughs> Three. <laughs> <laughs> well the thing is is like they'll be in different positions where they can squeeze on three, four, five kind of neon colors there. So <laughs> that's awesome. Well, hey, yeah, oh. you absolutely I'm of the mindset. This is this is a tip that someone's told me that I that I live by. You should never skimp on things that keep you that are that stand between you and the ground. So the three things that come to my mind are shoes, your bed, and your tires. Don't skimp on those. <laughs> Um, well, 
Nico and Alyssa, I, I really appreciate y'all coming on, joining me, help review some articles um, published in May or June of this year. So quick reminder for everybody, um, Nico and Alyssa are both on Twitter. Uh, Nico at N number one, KKO 816. And then Alyssa, Alyssa underscore Farm D. So thanks you all. I really appreciate you both. Perfect. Thank you, Nick. Thanks again, Nick. If you want to reach out, reminder, you can do that on Twitter at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email at pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Uh, the reference list with the articles we discussed today and more is featured in our podcast episode description, as well as on pharmacy to dose.com, our website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.